It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and today we're bringing you the latest installment of our Human Nature series, which is about our experiences with the natural world and how they shape us. This week, both of our storytellers found strength and resilience on the high seas. Our first story today is from the Story Collider's own Lindsay Cooper. It was recorded last month at her home in Maryland. I climb into the smallest airplane I've ever seen. Three scientists and a pilot that I can just reach up and touch the shoulder of. I'm 22 and I am so excited. I can't believe I get to do this job. I have wanted to study whales since since I can remember, since I recorded PBS nature shows on blank VHS tapes. And now I actually get to do it. And I've done my research. I know that North Atlantic right whales are critically endangered, that they come to the Florida and Georgia coasts to have babies, and that they're vulnerable to things like fishing lines and ship strikes. And I'm here to participate in the early warning system, a network of organizations and scientists and airplanes that fly this part of the coastline in order to warn ships that whales are in the area to help them avoid collision and also to take photographs to send to the scientific database. But what I did not know or understand is what it actually takes to physically fly in these very small, hot airplanes. I had never even heard of a Cessna Skymaster before I arrived here. And I did not know that I would get really motion sick in these very hot airplanes. But it's so worth it. It's so worth it to buy a three-month supply of Dramamine and get in that plane and fly a mere 500 feet above the water and see baby right whale calves nursing with their moms in the warm, safe waters of the coast of Florida. About six weeks or so after we've been flying, we return to our field house one day, our field station base for the season, and my supervisor meets us there. And she says, "Um, so I have to let you guys know something that's going on right now. One of the other survey planes is missing. Um, missing. I, I don't even understand. What does that even mean? And she says, well, actually, the last we heard from them, they radioed in right off the coast, a latitude line right off of our beach house. They had actually found whales and radioed them in their location, but that's the last anyone has heard from them. Okay, um, so what's happening now? And she says, well, the Coast Guard is looking. 
I'm leaving messages on Emily, the lead observer's voicemail, in case she happens to get service. She um, goes on to say it's very possible that they had to land on Cumberland Island. You know, they have a really experienced pilot, and he would know that if they had engine trouble, they they could land there. Uh, but they may not have cell phone service. Um, she also says it's very possible that they've had to make an emergency landing in the water. And they're in a lifeboat or their life jackets. And I just immediately start to think about the observers, the ones that sit in the exact same seats that I had just been sitting in, like Emily. And I wonder if her family is calling her and leaving her messages also. And I think about um, Jackie, who I know uh, was an incredible teammate. And just from years of working with my colleagues and that she actually didn't like flying very much, but she loved working on whales. And so she continued to do it. And I think about my own airplane and I think about the safety precautions that our pilots had taught us about, but I had never even tried to lift my lifeboat. I, I heard it was heavy and I know it sits in the seat behind where I usually sit, but I had never really given it a second thought. There starts to be talk about whether or not our team might become needed or might be able to be of service, that maybe we could use one of our airplanes and maybe me or another observer could go and fly and search the area. I try to sleep that night, but I'm weirdly like a scared of the dark. I, I sleep with the news on. Like the, the drone of the sound helps, or maybe I think they might break good news or something. That morning, the next morning, I, I call my parents at home to let them know what's going on. And I can, I can picture them each on their landline, one in the upstairs and one in the kitchen. And I fill them in on everything. And my mom says, you know, you don't, you don't have to keep flying. She's obviously nervous for my well-being and lets me know that it's okay to come home if that's how I feel, what I feel I need to do. My dad says, Linz, um, if you go to help search, you know, it's very possible that you could find or see something that maybe you're not quite ready to see. And I realize, you know, we don't talk about it very much, but he's been to Vietnam and I start to get a very uncomfortable picture of what he's trying to warn me about. So will you go if they ask you to go? Will you go and help? Yes, I, I will definitely go. If I can do something other than sit here and feel helpless listening to the local news, then I will go. The next day, word starts to trickle in that a debris field has been found. And I stand on my deck outside staring at the ocean, the deck of this beautiful beach house that just a few weeks earlier I had pulled up to and thought, oh my God, I get to live here and do my dream job. And now I'm sitting in a deck chair wondering what exactly do they mean by debris field? Like maybe that's a mistake. They found just like a, you know, a floating patch of trash or something. But we get more and more details that in fact, it's things that we all recognize like a backpack or camera equipment or safety equipment from the airplane. Soon after, side scanning sonar locates the aircraft 65 feet beneath the Atlantic Ocean, 
right off the beach from our house. In fact, it's so close that I can actually stand on that deck and watch the barge that's been deployed. I can see the crane that will lift that airplane off the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And I can see the vessels that carry the recovery divers that will be used to recover the bodies of those scientists and the pilot that went down in this terrible accident. Over the next few months, there's a lot of discussion between organizations and scientists and funders about if this work should continue. The answer is a resounding yes, that we, we really do make a difference. We have diverted ships, even submarines, away from collisions with an endangered species, and it has allowed these calves to then make their way up the coast and become thriving members of a struggling population. But we do need to take some more safety precautions. And part of that is now going to be attending ditch training, um, learning how to get out of an airplane if it does go in the water. So that fall, I find myself staring at a makeshift fuselage, the, um, the people part of the airplane, as it dangles over a crystal clear pool in a warehouse in Connecticut. And I am sweating, nervous, uh, freaking out. And, and I'm actually angry, a little bit angry that I'm even there. Because to me, it seems like a futile effort. Because I was there. I saw that airplane being taken away on a flatbed truck. I could see where my seat might have been. I was there when those family members flew back out over the water to disperse their family's ashes. And I know that if my airplane goes in the water, it is not a crystal clear pool with rescue divers waiting to pull us out. But this is what I agreed to do. This is my job. And I want to be a part of this effort to help a struggling population. I want to be a good teammate to my other team members and scientists. On the last simulation of the day, the sixth one, I climb back into the fuselage and give a little longing look back at the rescue divers. I hope maybe they'll let me out of this. The loudspeaker comes on and they yell, ditching, 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 and the fuselage slowly lowers into the water. I can feel the water soaking into my flight suit and creeping up. And I put my hand on my seatbelt, and when the water reaches my chin, I take that last breath, and I curl myself into the fetal position and wait. The plane jostles around a little bit and comes to settle at the bottom of the pool. And just like I'm taught, I take my fist and I bang the window open as hard as I can. I unbuckle, and I pull myself out, and I go to swim out like I had on the last five, but I can't. There's something above me. And against what I've been taught, I open my eyes to see what's going on. And I can see that I'm now underneath the fuselage, that on that last simulation, it had tipped so that my window was actually facing the bottom of the pool. And I had to swim actually down to get out. And now I'm underneath. My heavy sopping wet flight suit seems it's weighing me down. And I just kick and kick out as fast as I can. My lungs are burning and I break the surface and take a deep breath and only to realize that there's a, a 
rescue diver waiting, watching me this whole time. I pull myself out of the pool and collect my certificate and head for home. That night, I'm, I'm so exhausted. My mind just feels painful. My eyes burn from chlorine, and I'm just so tired. I climb into bed, and I set that certificate down. And I think to myself, wow, I can't believe I get to do this job. That was Lindsay Cooper. Lindsay is the much-beloved operations manager for the Story Collider. She spent years following endangered North Atlantic right whales up and down the U.S. East Coast, and now she takes her three kids to visit the Smithsonian Sand Ocean Hall in D.C., where they can view one of her photographs in the right whale exhibit. She will always have a deep passion for conservation science and science outreach. Before we continue on today, I just want to remind everyone that if you want to support stories like the ones you're listening to today, if you, like all of us at the Story Collider, believe in the power these stories have to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, you can sign up to support the Story Collider on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash the Story Collider. We so appreciate the support of our patrons, especially in this past year. You can also check out storyclider.org for more information on upcoming shows and workshops. We have outdoor shows coming up this fall in New York, Atlanta, St. Louis, and more. My life has been incredibly busy lately, but eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. If you're like me and on the go, it's great. And don't worry, you'll never be bored with Factor Meals. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons with things like pancakes, smoothies, and more to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. And my favorite part, Factor Meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed, which, as someone who is currently living without a fully functional kitchen, is ideal. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash storycollider50 and use code storycollider50 to get 50% off. That's code storycollider50 at factormeals.com slash storycollider50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With 0 to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Our next story today is from Rachel Cassandra. This story was adapted from a piece Rachel originally wrote for Narratively and it was recorded last month at her home in Oakland, California. So I'm on a boat in the middle of the mountainous archipelago of southeast Alaska, and I'm cleaning a fish. So I take the belly of the fish, slit it open, stick my hand in, and pull out its guts. In the back of its throat, its heart is hanging there and it's still beating. And I pull this out and I can feel it pulsing in my hand and I swallow it whole because this is what I heard 
you have to do to become a real fisherman. I have this romantic idea about fishing. You know, life on the sea, working really hard, making a lot of money, and it feels really different from what I was doing in San Francisco, which is just working catering jobs and serving. And so I'd gone to small town Alaska, walked the docks, talked to everyone I knew until I found a captain who was looking for a deckhand. That was Dave. He's sort of this, you know, older man in like his late 60s, kind of like hunched over. And he has these like giant brown eyes, which always just look a little sad. Um, And he talks really slowly, like a really big pauses between all of his words. And he tells me, I've never had a woman on the boat, so I'll have to get used to it. But um, he's willing to take me on, even though I have no experience, and I'm super grateful. It'll be just the two of us on his 40-foot wooden troller. And so we go out on his boat, and, uh, you know, I sleep in a little bunk there. Everything smells kind of like mildewy and moldy, um, and it's just full of crap, like fishing lures, like just piles of junk everywhere. I have to like climb over stuff to get in my bed at night. And the boat's really teeny. And Dave teaches me how to fish, how to put down the lines, how to put lures on, how um, how to hook the fish and hit them on the head so they die. And, um, he's always really kind and patient and he's sort of a gentle man. Um, you know, we don't talk about anything too personal. We're kind of distant. And a lot of the time when things are slow, I just read books, um, in the cabin and wait for the lines to ring when there's a fish. And the moments when I'm in the back of the boat killing the fish, uh, I have to hit them on the head and you know the kindest thing to do is to kill them really fast so they're not suffering and there's a couple ways to figure out if they're dead but the main one that I use is when you kill them if you look at their eyes their pupils dilate it's this really it's sort of this instant reaction and I have this moment over and over with all these fish and it is sad you know I feel um It feels heavy that I'm killing all these fish, but it also makes me feel like I'm connected to this really beautiful cycle of life and death. And for the first time that the way my job fits in with society, uh, you know, feeding people, killing so that we can survive, it just feels like a really clear relationship. And I feel connected to my job in a way that I'd never felt before. And it's really exciting. And I just start dreaming about, you know, getting my own boat one day and having this dual life where I spend half my time in the city working on art and half my time out in this beautiful, you know, mysterious land. And it's cool. I learn a lot about fishing in Southeast Alaska. Um, that region of Alaska in particular has really strict fishing limits. They're really careful about it. So everything they do, all these regulations are meant to protect the salmon population. And the fishermen I meet are some of the biggest environmentalists I've ever met before. They're really dedicated to, you know, preserving the 
salmon ecosystems so that they'll have a job indefinitely. They're in it for the long term. So about halfway through the season, we have engine problems. This is always happening with these old boats. It's just kind of part of the territory. And uh, we go to the nearest town where we can find a mechanic, where we know where one is. And we pull in there. Dave tells me, you know, it might be sometimes it's like a week or two that we have to wait for the mechanic. Um, it's in this tiny town called Pelican, which has like one store, one cannery, one restaurant. And there's there are a lot of um, boats docked there, though, some of them for the same reason, because there's this mechanic. And, um, you know, Dave talks to the mechanic. He's not sure when the mechanic will get around to it. And so he just says, well, we're kind of stuck here. So uh, we're eating breakfast in this, the one restaurant that exists there. Um, and I meet Spencer. And he is, again, he's this older man in his, I think he's 70 when I meet him. And like maybe like an inch shorter than me, like five, nine, and has this sort of gray scraggly hair that he wears. It's like long and he wears it in a ponytail down his back and he dresses like in all fleece. And he's really cool. I connect with him um, on a deeper level than I'd found, you know, with um, a lot of the other people, especially fishermen I'd met. We just, we just like each other a lot. He's cool. He's sort of like a free spirit type, used to dive when he was younger. And um, he asked me if while I'm stuck here, if I want to fish with him, just go out for like a couple days or whatever. And I tell him that'd be really cool. I need to check with my captain. And Dave gives me the go ahead. He's like, that's, you know, totally great. We're just going to be stuck here anyway. So I go out with Spencer. He has a sailing troller. So there's actually sails on the boat and we kind of tack back and forth while we're fishing. And yeah, we catch a bunch of fish, um, you know, sort of like a medium, medium couple days. And um, I'd agreed to check in with Dave every day on the phone while I'm out. So I'm in the cabin and I use Spencer's cell phone and call Dave and he answers the phone and he's really terse with me. He's, yeah, it's sort of like a whole attitude shift he's only ever been like really gentle and kind and he tells me if I don't want to come back he can just leave my suitcases on the dock and you know and I'm like what are you talking about I wasn't even thinking about leaving the boat and this it feels like it's coming out of nowhere and I'm really confused and I hang up the phone and tell Spencer what happened and Spencer's like well of course he's jealous pretty girl deckhand you're the feather in his cap it's like a status thing or something. And I just, yeah, I get this sinking in my feeling in my stomach and feel kind of anxious. And it feels like one of those times when, uh, you know, for me, when I was in high school um, as a girl, this, you know, coming of age, I had this sort of, you know, relatively sudden realization that there was this other element laced through all my interactions with people that was sex, this, um, you know, desire, sexuality. And I, yeah, it was really disappointing to find that that was laced through all these friendships I'd had, especially with guys that I thought were totally platonic. And at that time and this time too, it just felt like 
there's this whole other layer that's happening and that people aren't being fully honest. So um, I go back to Dave and I get up in the morning and he is slamming his shovel around the hole, like really aggressively. Like it's clear to me that, yeah, he's super angry. And I'm like, what's happening? And he says, you should have cleaned out the hold before. You're not being a good deckhand. You should have been doing all these things before I asked you. And he's like, there's moss all over the boat. You should have been cleaning that. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I'm trying to be a good deckhand. I don't know what I need to do. You're teaching me and I'll do better. And I tell him I'll, you know, clean out the hold and that I'll clean off the moss. And that afternoon I get on the moss and I've got this like tiny little scrub brush and I'm going just inch by inch. I realize this is like a much bigger job than I thought. And he interrupts me and says, oh, don't worry about the moss. We'll just power wash it off when we're in a bigger town. And I'm so frustrated. I'm like, it's clear that when we were talking before, he was just grasping for straws on like, for things that I'd done wrong. And it was just, it was all about him being like butthurt over me going to fish with Spencer. But I also realized, like I think about it and it's like, he's this older man, he's never been married. He works on the boat all the time alone. He used to go out with his dog, but last year his dog died. I see that it's, it's a pretty lonely life and I can't really fault him for wanting some company. It doesn't make me feel better about his sort of like weird feelings, possessiveness over me, but I just kind of let it go. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to finish up the season and then I don't need to worry about him anymore. And so I finish up the season with him and all the time while I'm on that tiny little boat with him, it just, it reminds me of when I was like a teenager living with my parents. And I was just like, anytime they would even graze my arm, I would just kind of like shudder from the touch and just everything. I wanted to be so far away from that place and everything they did annoyed me. And that's, that's how I felt with Dave um, until the end of the season. And at the end, you know, he was like, you can always fish with me again. And of course I knew I wouldn't, but I thanked him and we ended on good terms. So the next part of the season was king salmon season. Um, it's much bigger fish. Uh, they sell for a lot more money and the season's a lot slower. And I know I want to fish not with Dave. So I find Robert. I know that he's looking for a deckhand and before I even think about fishing with him, I ask around on all the docks. I do sort of like a reference check and say, you know, how does he work with people? Has he worked with women before? Um, you know, how successful is he at fishing? And everyone tells me like, he's a great fisherman. He makes a ton of money. He's really good at what he does. You know, he has a wife and family at home and he's worked with women before and everything has always been super professional and he's He's great to work for. Basically, like 100% amazing to work for. You should totally do it. So I decided to go on the boat with him and uh, just for king season. And it's cool. Fishing kings is much slower. And so, you know, we have a lot of downtime. We play Scrabble and Cribbage. And it's cool because we talk about poetry, too. Like, we're both, he said he used to write poetry. And we're both super into words and, you know, have a lot of, like, sort of intellectual discussions. Dave was really sweet, but we, 
you know, we didn't really connect in that way. You know, he says he used to write poetry, and so I encourage him to get back into that. I'm always, you know, doing this with writers when people say they used to write. I, I encourage them to get back into it because writing's cool and writing poetry is cool. Um, and we fish really hard. Um, you know, the first part of the season was slow, and we got into this patch of kings, and we're just pulling up and pulling up and pulling up over and over, knowing that we're like, you know, going to be selling these kings for a lot of money. It's really good money. Um, and we're catching so many kings that I even changed my plane ticket, I think twice, so I can stay longer and catch more fish with him. And the vibe on the boat is just like, we're both full of energy. You know, I think he's always like this when he's fishing. He's just super stoked on fishing. And I am so excited. It's like this new passion. And I just, yeah, just think you know, how much I'm loving it and how cool it would be if I keep fishing and maybe someday get my own boat and that this could be my life. I could have sort of like this life where I go between San Francisco and, and Alaska. And when I'm in San Francisco, I make art. And when I'm in Alaska, I make hella money. Just like really great vibe on the boat. And um, one of the last nights I'm there, he just says, I'm really going to miss this. And I say I am too, because I really am. It's at that point, it was really hard to imagine going back to San Francisco and that city life and yeah, all the disconnection that goes with, I guess, the urban environment. So the morning of my flight, it's, my flight's in the evening. We wake up on the boat and we've got, we've got like seven, eight hours of time on the boat um, just getting getting back to the small town that I was based out of. Robert is up when I get up, and he says, I didn't sleep at all last night, but I wrote a poem. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And he's like, but I'm really scared to share it with you. And I just get this really bad feeling. I'm like, uh-oh. And... I am like, I tell him, it's a really good idea not to share writing before you've edited it and sat on it. And I really don't think you should share it with me. And he says he really wants to. And he says, remember how I said I would miss this? Well, this is a poem about staying faithful to my wife. And he starts out the poem. He says, I wanted you last night. I wonder if you knew. And it's this wrought poem about sort of being torn between two women and my stomach sings I'm like first of all like my cheeks get hot I'm like so angry I'm so angry that he felt like he needed to share his stupid poem with me that he would risk our professional relationship all the work we'd done together and all the work we could do for next season and seasons to come that he'd just, you know, risked all of this just to tell me his stupid feelings when he had a wife. And I just don't really know what he was thinking. You know, if he thought I'd be like, oh, cool. Like you have feelings about me. I have them too. Like let's, you know, cheat on your wife, you know, or whether he just felt like he needed to express his emotions and just didn't really care what, what impact they had on me. I'm totally silent for like the whole boat ride back. 
And I'm just thinking about all the women I've met fishing. There aren't really a lot of them. It was probably like, you know, less than, uh, I'd met less than five, but I thought about all of them. Another was this deckhand named Rain who I'd gotten close to and her captain abandoned her on the dock halfway through the season because he confessed that he was in love with her and she didn't return his feelings. And I had met this older woman, older fisher woman who had her own boat. And she said when she was getting into it, everyone told her, oh, you'd better find a captain you'd like to fuck. And she said, I didn't find anyone I wanted to fuck. So I got my own boat. And it's just sort of this repeating story that happens over and over, like all different forms of it, but just this weirdness. And then I get really angry because I realize that Robert doesn't need me. He never needed me. There's a dozen other deckhands who would want to work with him. He's really successful and makes people a lot of money, but that I need him. And that that is a main reason why all this bad behavior goes unchecked. And all these captains are just not held accountable for what they do. And there's no consequences and there won't be. There will never be. It's just this industry run by like 70 plus year old men at this point. And that's just how it's going to stay. They grew up, you know, with like a really different idea of, of who women were and what they could be. And finally we get to the dock and, you know, I say my goodbyes and I walk off and I'm so relieved to just get the fuck out of there. I don't know what I'm going to do about next season, but I don't need to think about it. I just want to get away from him and I fly back home and I never fish again. That was Rachel Cassandra. Rachel is a journalist and essayist working in print and radio. She lives with her snake, Squeeze, in Oakland, California. You can find her work at rachelcassandra.net. The Story Collider is so grateful to Lindsay and Rachel for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's Program Director, Nissa Greenberg, and our Senior Podcast Editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Gastor Almonte and Misha Gajewski. Our theme music is by Ghost. Stay tuned for our next episode of Human Nature next week. And until then, thanks for listening. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.